Romans chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 8 through 14, Lord willing. Institutional syndrome, it refers to deficits or disabilities which develop after a person has spent long period living in a place like a mental hospital or a prison or some other remote institution away from normal society. One effect of living in those institutions is that once a person returns to normal life, they are often unable to manage many of its demands. It's not a great illustration, but I think you could see a little bit of this in a person who becomes a Christian. God gives you life and freedom, but you can be so affected by years of living in sin, responding sinfully by yielding your body to the world and to the devil, that it's hard to walk as a normal person the way God intended, or at least there's a, there's a struggle now because you've been almost institutionalized, as it were, in your flesh and in your body of sin for such a long time uh, that it's, it's uh, difficult to give up some of those habits. But you can do that, and these are the verses that tell you how. Verse 8, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. The spiritual fact is that when Jesus died on the cross, we died as to our old state of being. We're no longer seen by God as being in or identified with Adam. Jesus is our new representative, and what is true of Him is true for us. We live with Him. We all either do or have lived with someone. Uh, I don't know, probably the worst part of college is living with people. I, I have to say that. Now, maybe some of you had great roommates. I seemed to be a bad roommate magnet uh, when I was in college, and I can't even tell you the stories. They, it would take too long. But, uh, but when you live with someone... You share space, you share supplies, you share responsibilities with the folks that you live with. In a much greater and, of course, spiritual way, you share everything that belongs to or is true of Jesus. You live to Him. Live with Him certainly looks forward to the future also after we are either resurrected or raptured. But it also applies now as we realize that all spiritual blessings in heavenly places are ours to enjoy. And so where, wherever Jesus lives, you live there. The Bible says that He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and it indicates that from that place we're seated with Him, spiritually speaking, and all spiritual blessings that are available to Him are available to us. And so we're uh, sharing in all of that. We can talk about experiencing resurrection life right now on a daily basis. We often summarize this truth by stating that the same mighty power which raised Jesus from the dead is available in my life right now. I have the present indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to apply the blessings and benefits of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Verse 9 says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over Him. Knowing is a key word. We talked a lot about this last time we were together. As we've said in each previous study, we appropriate these truths by faith. We're to know that these things are true because God's telling us that they are the facts. These are the spiritual facts that require only our believing for them to be activated in our lives. It says that Christ, 
having been raised from the dead. It's just a reminder, but we believe that Jesus rose from the dead in a glorified physical body. It's a foundational truth of biblical Christianity. That's not a problem, I'm sure, for all of you who are saved, uh, but at some point in your life you will encounter someone or some group of people who will tell you that it really doesn't matter if Jesus actually rose from the dead bodily or not because everything is really spiritual or, you know, we just kind of glean from his teaching. But the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is an absolute foundational doctrine of our faith. Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Jesus uh, raised many people from the dead during his earthly ministry. These all were raised in their regular physical body and they all died again. Uh, I've, uh, you know, when you and I read the, uh, the accounts of, in the Gospels and, and then even on into the book of Acts of people being raised from the dead, stunning, glorious, amazing. Sons, you know, mothers who have lost their sons and then the son is raised off of, uh, you know, in the very funeral or little girls that arise when Jesus speaks to them. Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, hopping out of the grave in his grave clothes. Everybody is stunned and so much that Jesus has to, you know, he has to get on his ushers and say, hey, well, you guys unwrap that guy, would you? You know, he's alive now. And, and it's amazing. It's fantastic. I, if you're like me, you've often thought at a funeral about, you know, praying for the resurrection of that individual and then, you know, maybe listening at the coffin to make sure that he got out. Because uh, that would be weird, you know. If <clears throat> Anyway, if you're not in a resurrection humor mood, I can tell, so I'll just move on. Uh, but regarding these, these resurrections, Lazarus is probably the best example because after Lazarus rose from the dead, the religious leaders heard about it, they said, yeah, we need to kill him. We can't have this resurrected guy walking around as living proof that Jesus Christ has the power to raise the dead. So let's kill him. Uh, And of course they ended up killing Jesus. uh, Or so they thought in in the sense of getting rid of him uh, for good. But So, you know, these resurrections that we read about, they're, they're just raising from the dead. They weren't a resurrection in the true sense of receiving a glorified body. When Jesus was raised from the dead... He was the first to be resurrected in a glorified human body. He was raised to never die again. And, uh, and I also like to add, because I was way into being a Christian before it, it stunned me, the realization that my Lord uh, is in that glorified physical body now for all eternity. God, uh, a very God from eternity past, decided to, in one sense, limit Himself to being in a body just like ours uh, will be in eternity, but Jesus uh, remains in that body identified with you and I. What a, what a great love the Lord has for us, that He would do that for us. He'll, he rose to never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Death once held Jesus for a time. He was in the grave for three days, not as a prisoner, however. You shouldn't read this as as if he was some kind of a prisoner or uh, anything like that. In fact, there is a false teaching going around. Uh, It's promoted by some of the uh, hyper-Pentecostal health and wealth doctrine kind of guys and gals uh, that after Jesus died on the cross, that his suffering on the cross wasn't quite enough 
And so he also had to be tormented in hell for a period of time by the devil, uh, and then he had suffered enough uh, for the sins of the world. Of course, all of that is, uh, as Chuck Smith would say, hooey, whatever that is. I don't know what hooey is. It might be terrible. I probably shouldn't say it. Pam, my wife's probably going to say, Gene, I can't believe you said hooey twice in public. But anyway, <clears throat> it's all a load of hooey, whatever hooey is. So now it's four times I've said it. But uh, uh, Jesus on the cross said what at the end? It is almost done. No, he said it is finished. So it's almost done. I got to go and get beat up by the devil now in hell. No, he said it is finished. And uh, the cross, uh, you, for all of its carnage uh, and sorrow and suffering, which was uh, amazing and deep, uh, Jesus is in full control of his faculties on the cross. And he dismisses his own spirit. After he had suffered uh, all that he needed to suffer for the sins of the world, he committed his own spirit into his Father's hands and uh, gave up the ghost. He died. Uh, and remember, the uh, Pilate, when he heard he was dead, was surprised that he had died so quickly because usually it took a long, long time. Uh, it was a gruesome, painful death. Uh, could go on for several days on crucifixion. And so, uh, you know, they were even going to... Uh, normally they would break the legs of individuals on the cross when they wanted him to finally die, but because he had already died... Uh, then they didn't do that, fulfilling the prophecy that not one bone of his body would be broken. And so, you know, prophecy, this is whole kind of a sidelight, but um, first the Bible prophesies that Jesus, 400 years before crucifixion, is really being used as a form of punishment for criminals. The Bible predicts that Jesus is going to be crucified. And then pretty much everybody who was crucified at some point had their legs broken so that they would not be able to push themselves up and get breath in their diaphragm and and yet Jesus didn't have his legs broken or any bones broken and so I mean the Bible is an in-your-face prophecy book it's like God says I'm gonna have the Son of God crucified which is something most of you don't even understand right now and he's not gonna have his bones broken figure that one out and it's 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 like almost never happens you know and so uh, the Lord is in control of those things. And so when it says death has no dominion over him, no longer has dominion, it doesn't mean he was the prisoner of death. It just means uh, that he was in the grave for three days uh, and now he's not. Now, prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus, all the people who died, seems to me from Scripture, went to what we would call Hades, not hell. Hades was divided into two compartments. We learn this in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus talks about the destination of the rich man and Lazarus. We believe not a parable, but a true story. Uh, two compartments, a place of torment and a place of rest called paradise. When Jesus died on the cross, he descended into Hades, into paradise. There he revealed himself to all the righteous dead from all time as the Savior they had put their faith in. And then Jesus led them to heaven in triumph. He emptied that compartment and brought those souls to heaven with him. This is explained by the Apostle Paul in a passage in Ephesians chapter 4, which is a quote uh, from an Old Testament passage, I believe, in Isaiah. And so, uh, Jesus descends, Jesus uh, you know, goes into Hades, reveals himself to those who have been waiting for the coming of the Messiah, 
and then takes them to heaven with him. When he was in paradise, awaiting his physical resurrection, he was the Lord. There's no basis anywhere in Scripture for thinking that Hades is some sort of kingdom over which the devil reigns. Uh, this is an invention of human beings. It's, it works great for the movies. Don't you? I mean, I, uh, you know, I love a good movie where you know, the devil is reigning in hell and demons are tormenting people and you don't want to go there and you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I slap myself awake. And I think, yeah, that's not really what's going on at all. First of all, the devil isn't in hell. Uh, the Bible says that he's the prince of the power of the air. He, he hangs out somewhere in the atmospheric heavens. He hasn't even been cast down fully to the earth. And so from his little base of operations in the heavens, he is summoned to heaven to talk to God from time to time. We learn that in Job. And other times he's walking about as a roaring lion on the earth seeking whom he may devour. In the great tribulation time, he'll be thrown to earth and then finally thrown into the abyss. But right now the devil's not in hell and he's not reigning in hell and he will never reign in hell Hell was created as a place of punishment and incarceration and torment for the devil. Demons are not in Hades torturing and tormenting the souls of deceased unbelievers. A few really bad demons are already incarcerated in special places. And that's kind of funny to me to say that. Some really bad demons. I mean, you know, you've got your, your average run-of-the-mill demons and then you've got some really bad dudes. They're already incarcerated chained, punished, uh, the rest of the demons and the devil are on the loose. I already mentioned the heresy about Jesus suffering in hell, obviously not true. So verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Je uh, since Jesus was sinless, how is it we can say he died to sin? Well, first he died to the penalty of sin by taking upon himself the sins of the whole human race. He met the legal demands of sin for all mankind who would trust Him for salvation. So, He died to sin. In other words, He died to remove the penalty of sin. And second, He died to sin and that He broke the power of sin. A major point of this section is that sin has no power over us anymore. Sure, it doesn't seem that way, uh, but we've talked about that in terms of the flesh and, and the lusts of the flesh and those kinds of things. We'll see more about that tonight. It says here that Jesus did this once for all. What the Lord accomplished in His death, burial, and resurrection can't be repeated. It is done. It's finished. It needs not be repeated. And by the way, this is one reason I don't like crucifixes where Jesus is still hanging on the cross. His work on the cross is finished. The empty cross is the only possible symbol for a Christian, not the cross that still has a suffering Savior on it. And, and by extension, there's no reason for Jesus to be re-crucified or to suffer again the way some uh, churches uh, teach, that every week or so, you know, you have to re... Uh, Jesus is literally dying again for the sins of the world and He's still on the cross. That's not true. The empty cross. After all, remember, Jesus says, it is finished. He didn't say it is finished until next Sunday when I have to do this all over again, spiritually speaking, and you have to be there. Uh, and, and as long as you and I are there every Sunday, you might go to heaven. But if you miss a Sunday here or there, 
you're in big trouble. So, I mean, it's done. It's finished. The cross is empty. It says here, the life that he lives, he lives to God. Of course, Jesus, as eternal, always lived to God. He always lived in relation to his Father and to the Holy Spirit. But with his resurrection, he, gives, he lives to God in the fulfillment of all that the Scripture had prophesied of his comings. His successful completion of his mission at his first coming, punctuated by his resurrection and then ascension, assures us that the rest of God's plan will unfold just as it is risen, uh, written. Excuse me. Jesus lives to God as the one who will step forward and take the scroll to unleash the great tribulation on the earth. He lives to God as the one who will return to end the battle of Armageddon. He lives to God to rule over the earth for a thousand years. And he lives to God to create a new heaven and a new earth. And so when it says he lives to God, it, it, it means in this context that everything God said would occur because of Jesus' death on the cross will occur because he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Verse 11, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I reckon is something Jed Clampett might say to Jethro. Uh, for those of you who are old enough to have watched the original uh, Beverly Hillbillies or those of you who watch Nickelodeon. Uh, so uh, the old Beverly Hillbillies, we take it to mean I guess or I suppose, you know, like maybe this will happen. But in reality, the word reckon is far more confident and robust. William McDonald quotes an author who wrote this, it means believing what God says in Romans 6, 6 and knowing it is a fact in one's personal salvation. This demands a definite act of faith which results in a fixed attitude toward the old man. We will see him where God sees him on the cross, put to death with Christ. The first step in a walk of practical holiness is this reckoning upon the crucifixion of the old man. And so, I think normally we think that the first step uh, in a walk of practical holiness is some level of personal discipline. In other words, something that I need to do in order to work out holiness in my life. And though there is a place for discipline, obviously, and for disciplining ourselves, uh, the first step really in practical holiness, in really walking in holiness, is to look at the cross and say, hmm, my old nature was crucified there. He's a dead man, and so I don't need to yield to him anymore. I am free to yield myself to God. Now, I struggle with the flesh. We talked about that last week, and we'll say more about it as we go on. But the, I, I don't even begin to discipline myself until I realize that I can, in the sense that my old man is crucified. And so, just on a practical level, when I'm tempted to sin, I'm to reckon, I'm to believe that I don't have to sin because my old sin nature is dead. And what's left over, the flesh is just trying to gratify itself. And I can say no to that and say yes to God. That's the intention of the word reckon. Count as being true what God says, that you are dead indeed to sin. By faith, you conclude to be true what God has declared and said. God does not command you to become dead indeed to sin. He tells you you are dead indeed to sin and alive to Him, and then He commands you to act appropriately. And so it may sound like a subtlety, but it's not. It's pretty profound. 
God doesn't say, now Gene, I've saved you, now you need to start becoming dead to sin. You need to really, you know, root sin out of your life. He says, Gene, you're dead to sin. And if you want to sin, that's on you, but I've given you power over it to say no to it and to walk in practical holiness. Now, we reckon ourselves dead to sin by responding to temptation as a good dead man would. The story is often told of Augustine being accosted by a woman who had been a mistress of his before his conversion. When he turned and walked away quickly, she called after him, Augustine, it is me, it is me. Quickening his pace, he called back over his shoulder, Yes, I know it is you, but it is no longer me. He had the idea that something had changed in him. He meant that he was dead to sin and alive to God. A dead man has nothing to do with sin. A dead man can't sin. You could tempt him all you want. He just can't sin anymore. Now instead, we are alive to God in Jesus Christ, and this means that we are called to holiness, worship, prayer, service, bearing fruit, all those kinds of things that uh, are part and parcel of the Christian life. Now the next verses talk about your choice of master. Since you're free from sin, you don't have to sin anymore, but you still, we learned last week, have this flesh. Now Paul says, let me explain it this way. Let's look at it as if you were a slave with a master in your life. And he says, you can choose whose slave you are now. You read of presenting yourself either to sin as your master or to God as your master. The New King James Version uses the word present, while the King James uses the word yield. You are to present yourself by yielding your will to God. And so verse 12 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Several years ago, Bob Dylan wrote a Christian song entitled, You Gotta Serve Somebody. The title captures an important spiritual principle. You were created in such a way that you must serve someone. You might not like to hear that, but it's true. We like to think that we're free, but as you read the Bible, you realize that the way you were created, you were created to serve someone. Only in serving the one you were created for will you find true freedom. Adam believed he could get out from under serving God and become his own master. That, this is a... The, the, pro, the thing that Adam went through in the Garden of Eden proves that you have to serve somebody. Adam uh, was tempted and sinned. He believed the lie of the devil that he could be his own master, that he could be equal with God, that he didn't need a master. And the moment that he sinned, he found that he had exchanged serving God for serving the devil. He still had to serve somebody, but now it was the wrong person. What he found is that he was the servant of Satan and sin began to reign in his mortal body. All of a sudden he realized he was naked. He was ashamed. He, he had fallen and he was serving sin. God promised him a Savior who he could submit to, whom he would surrender to, whom he could serve, who would set him free again. Now you were once in Adam. You were the servant of Satan with sin reigning in your mortal body. Now you're in Christ the Bible here says you're dead to sin. Sin is still present both within and around you. You still have the flesh and you're still contending with the world and the devil. You're still on the earth, still in a corrupting body. Therefore, you daily choose whom you will serve, sin or the Savior, and whether you will let sin or righteousness reign. And so it's a pretty easy metaphor, really. It's a really easy illustration. 
Paul says your old sin nature is dead, but you still have to serve somebody with the body that you have, with this flesh and with your mind and will and emotions. He said you can still serve the devil. You can still serve sin. Or you can serve the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Verse 13, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Sin expresses itself through your physical body and its appetites. Your eyes, your ears, your mouth, all of the members of your physical body, they can become instruments of sin. Since your sin nature was crucified, you don't need to yield to its lust. You don't need to present yourself to that and say, here, do whatever you want. Instead, you can choose to, verse 13, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so it's a choice every time, but one that you can always make. And so this, Paul is boiling it down. He says, so after everything I've said, here's what it comes down to. Moment by moment, you can choose to serve sin or you can choose to serve God. And, and Paul's not even dealing with the fact, you know, he, later on in different writings, he talks about the level of temptation. I mean, we like to think that we're tempted beyond, you know, what we can bear and, and we we have to go off after the sin thing. And, and Paul's just saying, no, you, you, don't, you don't have to. You're the one that chooses whom you will serve. You're going to serve somebody. And maybe if we realize that, if you realize that sin is still going to be a master over you, if you give in to sin, it's going to rule your life and ruin your life. But you're going to serve somebody and you might as well serve the one who died for you and loves you and sets you free to serve him so that your life can mean something and be purposeful and affect other lives rather than serving sin. Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, the first reason sin shall not have dominion over you was that our old man was crucified with Christ. We saw that in verse 6. The second reason is that we are not under law, but under grace. What Paul is saying is that sin... He's now moving into areas of, of uh, argument and thought that his audience would have about, you know, how, how do I really live this principle out? And the Jew that he was writing to would still think, well, I do it by keeping the law. I keep the Ten Commandments. I work hard to, you know, learn the law and keep the law. And so Paul is saying, well, no, sin has the upper hand over a person who tries to live by law. And there's at least two reasons for that. Number one is that the law tells you what to do, but it never gives you the power to do it. This is so important to realize people who want to live, you know, keep the Sabbath regulation or keep dietary regulations or they want to put you back under the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law tells you what to do and if you could do it, you could be righteous before God because it's His fantastic law. But the only one who could do it was Jesus Christ. No one else could or can. And the law has no power within it for you to keep it. All it does is condemn you. And secondly, the law stirs up desires in fallen human nature to do what is forbidden. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one like this, but when I, you know, when I was a kid especially and I saw a sign that said, don't walk on the grass, man, if you hadn't put the sign up there, I probably would have stayed on the sidewalk. But since you're going to be in my face about it, watch this. You know, and, and uh, so there's something about posting a law that makes people want to break it. And, and, and uh, it's just, a, it's, it, you know what? It's human nature 
It's the fall in human nature. And so we don't want to live under the law. We don't want to be reminded constantly of what failures we are. We don't want to have an impossible standard that we can't keep. Not under law, but under grace is another way to describe the radical change in the life of someone who is born again. For the Jewish person of Paul's day, living life under law was everything. Now he shows us that in light of the new covenant, we're not under law, but under grace. His work in our life has changed everything. D.L. Moody used to speak of an old black woman in the South following the Civil War. D.L. Moody, the great uh, early evangelist in the United States, early 1900s. Being a former slave, this woman was confused about her status, and she asked, Now is I free or be I not? When I go to my old master, he says I ain't free. And when I go to my own people, they say I is. And I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me Lincoln signed a proclamation But my master says he didn't. He didn't have any right to. Now, what would you say to that woman? You'd say, you're free because of what Abraham Lincoln did. You know, just in general. I mean, it was more than just Lincoln. But you'd say that she's free. And those other people, they just want to keep you enslaved to an old system that has been annihilated. And so just like that, you and I, we can listen to our old slave master, but you be free. Maybe you need to talk in kind of that old black slang, you know, to your flesh. Next time your flesh is tempting, you say, but you be free and, and laugh about it, but don't give in to sin. And so it's, it's really simple. I mean, we would look at a person like that and say, no, you've, you've been set free. And then that gets into that stuff I talked about earlier, the institutional syndrome, how sometimes people who have been enslaved, they don't know how to be free, do they? They still want to live. You know, it's like, you know, all the movies that you watch about prisoners, life, you know, lifers who they want to get back to prison because it's the only life they know. It's a terrible life. It's an awful life. It's, it's, it's sad and tragic, but it, it's, it's comfortable. They'd rather be in that weird, non-normal life than out in the normal, real world. And, and I think sometimes as Christians we can almost be like that. We, you know, we, it's like... This is the real world. This is the normal world. I've been born again. I can say yes to God and no to sin. I can make a difference in people's lives. I can lay down my life. I can love my wife. I can love others. I can serve the Lord. But I, I just I feel so much more comfortable doing this other stuff that I've always done. It gives me a, a, a kind of temporary rush. You know, I, I know that if I keep doing it, it's going to give me a you know, permanent brain damage. Or land me in jail, or, or I'm, I'm going to come up with an addiction, or you know, I, I see what it does to people. I, I, you know, I've seen all the movies, and I don't, even, and I've seen people whose lives have been ruined by this stuff. But you know, just I just feel comfortable doing that. That's you know, that's what I want to be. This this whole Christian life thing, it's kind of it's kind of eerie and weird. I don't know how to be a person of purpose and meaning and love and joy and peace and all of that. And so I'm drawn back into that old life. But you be free. You don't need to be doing that anymore. Spurgeon said this. He said, If God has given to you and to me an entirely new life in Christ, how can that new life spend itself after the fashion of the old life? Shall the spiritual live as the carnal? How can you that were the servants of sin but have been made free by precious blood go back to your old slavery? I say amen to that. Don't stay institutionalized in your flesh. Amen? All right, praise the Lord.